Thanks for joining us here at Belgium Community Church. Our current series is called 167. It's a look at the book of James and what faith looks like beyond Sunday. Right after college, I started working at Starbucks, which is a very like post-college job to have while I was figuring some things out and doing some more school. And we had a number of regular customers. One customer that came in about two, three mornings a week. He seemed old at the time, but he was early 30s, so now I look at him as a young guy. Uh, he would come in a few mornings a week, and he was always dressed just so. Everything was just right. And then he would sit there, and it was really awkward. And one time I commented, and one of my coworkers goes, yeah, he reminds me a lot of you. And I just decided to put that out of my mind as to what the similarities between us were. But he would sit there a few mornings a week, kind of like just looking around, and then he would leave. And then I noticed one time that he started coming in, and I started laughing because he's sitting there awkward, kind of creeping me out, maybe he's creeping other people out, reading How to Win Friends and Influence. And I laughed because I was like, that's the kind of book that if you're struggling in that area, read it at home. Don't tell everybody, hey, this is my struggle. I'm trying to learn about this. And eventually, I ended up reading it and realizing that I would call it how to use people to get the things that you want. It's kind of my, my term for it. But what's wild is it, it's a super popular book. I hope I am stepped on your toes or hurt your feelings because that's your favorite book. But How to Win Friends and Influence People is a major book that people still read and recommend these days because so much of our lives are spent in relationship with other people. So much of our lives are spent not just privately like contemplating things on our own, getting the things done that we want to get done. We've got to deal with people. People in our house, people at work, people on our block, people in our church. So right now, as we're starting, or I'm sorry, we're in this series through the book of James called 167, where we're looking at what does faith look like beyond Sunday? We have to ask the question, what does faith look like in relationship with other people? How, do, how does my following Jesus affect me relating to the other people in my house, the other people on my block, the other people at my work? So today we're looking at James chapter 2 that raises that tension where we go, gosh, life would be easier without people, but be hard to get anything done. So God, how do we live out our faith with these people? So go ahead and turn with me to the book of James. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Let's pray. God, as we open your word, as we ask the question, what does it look like for us to live out our faith among other people? Help us, Lord, to get your heart Reflect your image into the world. In Jesus' name, amen. James chapter 2 tells us, do not show favoritism. Like, How are we supposed to deal with other people? Do not show favoritism. What I want to show you today in, the cha in chapter 2 is 
three reasons that we should not and we cannot show favoritism if we follow Jesus. Verses 1 through 4 just says, do not show favoritism because you follow Jesus. We can get into all of these other reasons that the chapter is going to lay out, but he just starts it with believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. There is something special about the glorious Lord Jesus Christ that is incompatible with showing favoritism. And so if we're going, how am I supposed to treat other people? It comes back to, is Jesus a glorious Lord in our lives? Because if that happens, then favoritism is incompatible. You see, in the context of the Roman world at the time, you got your position and your, your honor. And one of the major ways that you got it was based on how much money you had. There were, there were different like levels in society. And if you hit a certain amount of money, then you got to move up to the next category. You, you didn't get to move up in the category in a different way where we might say that based on your merit, based on the things that you do or how hard you work, you might move up to another category. But no, in this society, if a rich man adopts you, you instantly move up to another category because you've got more money. And if you have a business, no matter how good it is, unless you reach a certain threshold, you will never move up with honor. So that's the context that James is writing to. He's writing to these Jewish Christians that have been sent away from Jerusalem, sent away from their homes into these towns, and he says, you can't be like the culture around you. You're moving into these cities where the people with honor have money, and you're going to be tempted to value the things that your neighbors value. But if Jesus is a glorious Lord, you cannot adopt the, the world's values. And so... The question for us is to go, what, is the, what are those cultural values that we're tempted to shade our attention towards those things? That if somebody has this or does that, then they're somehow better, more important in the kingdom of God. And so let's give them some honor. Or if this person can do something for me, then I'm going to give them some more attention. I'm going to invite them into my home more often. If we do that, then we've just become like the world around us. James is like, if Jesus is a glorious Lord, then we can't look like the rest of the world looks because they don't follow Jesus. A glorious Lord means that there's honor for the person who's poor and with filthy old clothes, not just the rich person with, an, with a gold ring. If Jesus is a glorious Lord, then there's got to be treasure for everybody. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called No Little People. And one of the things he said is that in God's eyes there's no little people and there's no little places that if we're going to follow Jesus then we have to say there's no town no block there's no place that's little and there's nobody who's smaller in Jesus eyes there's no little person that's not worth spending time on and so that means that there's nobody that's too old there's nobody that's too young that means there's nobody with too disabled to matter in God's kingdom. We have to become the kind of people that say, we have a glorious Lord, and so we're not going to play favorites. We're going to value each and every one of them. Another writer has just written a book recently that the title of the book says it all. The gospel comes with a house key. And if Jesus is a glorious Lord, then we welcome all sorts of people into our houses. If they always look like us and dress like us or are a level up, then somehow we've lost this glorious Lord. And so the community of God must reflect the wide-open love of neighbor that our glorious Lord Jesus Christ has shown to us. 
That's the kind of people we've got to be. Do not show favoritism because we have a glorious Lord with arms wide open who loves all neighbors. He loves the women who wash his feet with their hair. He loves the lepers that nobody will touch. He loves the demonic possessed people that have to live in caves because they're, dis- they're dangerous to everybody. So the question for us is to say, we follow a glorious Lord. Jesus, help me identify where I'm tempted to play favorites and help me instead join you with arms wide open. What's interesting about the book of James is there's this kind of, this kind of question and answer. Because there's this in, in verse, beginning in verse 5, there's this implied objection. Like, James, is this really that big of a deal? James, we, we've been run out of our homes in Jerusalem. We're trying, to play, we're trying to make homes in these new cities. Like, is this really that big of a deal, James? You, you, could, you could list all sorts of things that matter, and somehow you're talking about this. Verse 5 through 13 says, don't show favoritism, because this is as important as every other part of God's law. This is where it gets start to become uncomfortable. We say, is this really that big of a deal? And James says, this is as important as every other law that God has made. He starts in verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world? to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. You have dishonored the poor. Is it, not the, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convinced, convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law. It gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James says in these verses, do not show favoritism because this is as as important as every other law. He starts here in verse 5 with God. This is not how God is. This isn't how God is. Hasn't he chosen the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? And then he begins laying out. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. We find that in two places. We find it in Leviticus chapter 19, part of the law that God gave to Moses and to the people where he said, love your neighbor as yourself. But we see that show up when the Pharisees come and ask Jesus, which is the most important of the laws? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The the background to this commandment is that not only is it in Moses' law, this is what Jesus said. Here's the two great commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. Then he begins walking through, like, if 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 you don't commit adultery, but you commit murder, you're still a lawbreaker. You can say, well, I didn't break all of the laws, but it doesn't matter. God's standard is actually, here's all of the laws. And so James comes into this and says, "God, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But if you break, love, not, uh, if you break the command to love your neighbor as yourself, you're a lawbreaker either way. This is where it gets really uncomfortable. James, you could actually go in another place, James. James, why are you having to like raise this one up? He's equating not loving your neighbor with adultery and murder and not loving God. 
That's a much better, much higher standard than you and I usually go to. You and I usually don't go to this standard where we say, wow, the way that I treat the person two doors down from me, the way that I treat the person across the hall from me, the way that I treat the people who look different, who think different than me, the way I treat them is as important as adultery and murder in God's eyes. Love of neighbor should be a big deal to us because it's a big deal to God. He says, do not show favoritism in all of God's laws matter. Adultery, murder, favoritism. We look at this. We go, God, is this this really that big of a deal? But this has been the tradition of the church throughout history. It's what we see in people like William Wilberforce who loves God and loves his neighbors enough to spend his life on work reform, ending slavery, who loves his neighbors enough to work with soup kitchens, to invite people into his home. It's people like Hannah Moore who spends her life saying, if these are actually God's words, then we need to give the kind of education to the poor so that they can hear God's words. It's the kind of thing we see in somebody like Charles Spurgeon who preached great sermons, focused on the gospel, and also spent his life on soup kitchens and orphanages. It's the same kind of thing that we see in the life of George Mueller, who was a German pastoring in England, caring for orphans, and going to Spain to reach people that had never heard the gospel in Spain. This is the tradition of the church that has said, love of God has to be paired with love of neighbor. This is is not an optional part of God's law. These go together and we must do them. We must focus on how do we love our neighbors, not showing favoritism. So the question for us is, will we stop ignoring neighbors and problems? Will we say, God, this matters to you. This is part of your law. God, I'm going to join you in these things. This is not an optional part of your law. So you and I should look around at our lives and say, "Who, who lives on my block? Who works in my office? Who lives in our town? Who lives in these communities around us? God, how do we join you in these places? You love them. You say, do not show favoritism. God, how do we join you in these places? Because this is as important as laws about sex, Laws about murder. The objection, again, in this passage is kind of like, I love God. And loving God is the thing that saves. So James, why are you making a big deal out of this? James, I have faith in God. Why are you acting like love of neighbor is such a big deal? And that's where we get to verse 14. Verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But somebody will say, you have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Do you believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered a righteous considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies 
sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the part where where James gets really uncomfortable. Faith without deeds is dead. What good is faith with no deeds in them? You see, we have to locate it in this context of, he says, do not show favoritism. And someone's like, how important is this? I believe and I love God. How important is this law? That's what James is challenging here. It's faith. I I love God. I have faith. I just don't love my neighbor. There's no deeds. James says, no, I love God. And it shows up because of how I treat my neighbors. Because of how I don't show favoritism. James is saying faith without works is dead and useless because faith shows up in works. It shows up in the way that we live. You see, we often place this, make this kind of matrix in our mind. That this is low faith and this is high faith. If this is here on the left is low works and this is high works. We end up going, well, I have lots of faith, but little deeds. That's not that big of a deal. At least it's better than lots of deeds and no faith. James says, no, we want to have lots of faith and lots of deeds because that's how we know that our faith is real. He points to Abraham and Rahab. Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was called God's friend. But the way that we know that Abraham believed God is when when God told Abraham to go somewhere, he went. If Abraham said, God, I love you, I believe you, I'm going to spend my whole life doing the things that you want, and then he never left his land, he never took his son up on the mountain, we would say, Abraham, like if you really love God, if you really believe God, why, are, why do you never obey him? And in the same way, Rahab, the Bible tells us that she basically considered the reward of going with the people of Egypt to be of more value than what she had in her own land. But if she'd never done anything, if she'd never welcomed the spies, we would have said, does she really value that? And so this passage says that even Abraham and Rahab, they believed God, and so it changed how they lived. And so if we say that we love God, then it has to change how we treat the people around us. Do we, have, do we play favorites? It's not a calibration of, well, I have a little faith and I have a little works. Or I have a lot of works and a little faith and they balance each other out. It's, no, actually, I have lots of faith in God and it changes how I look at the world and it changes how I treat other people. It's not a calibration of just a little bit of each or a little bit more here. It's all of both. The temptation is for us to insert salvation in between loving God and loving our neighbors. James says, no, do not do that. Do not insert salvation in there and just act like your works don't matter. It's almost like faith and works is a math equation for us. Say faith plus works. Or, well, faith is good enough and it's better than works. I think instead, there's a different idea that we should have. It's not a math equation where we're trying to balance these things out or add them together. Enrico Fermi was one of the fathers of the nuclear program here in the United States. And he built the first functioning nuclear reactor underneath the stands of the football stadium at the University of Chicago, which is like the weirdest idea I've ever heard. Like, here in a populated place, I'm going to build a nuclear reactor. But he built the first one underneath the stands. And for years afterward, there was a similar building process to what he did in that initial spot. They may use some other methods now, but it's the same kind of method that was used in the Soviet Union at Chernobyl. But what they would do 
is they would be using uranium blocks and graphite blocks that would begin interacting with each other and creating this critical reaction. But they didn't want to start it from the get-go. And so they actually built the entire thing around control rods that would absorb all of the radioactivity coming out of the blocks. So if you can imagine, they would put these control rods in the middle, and they would just start to build around it and build around it until they had the thing built. And then when they wanted to test, is this actually going to work, they would pull the control rods slightly. They would pull them up just a little bit and see the reaction start to take place. And then so they could control it, they would cut the wire and drop the control rods right back in there to stop the reaction from going off. They would build the entire thing around control rods because those are the things that controlled the reaction. And if they didn't do that, things would go wild and go off the rails. It's the kind of thing we've seen in nuclear reactions like Chernobyl. Like, Joe, what does this nuclear reactor have to do with faith and works? What does that have to do with not showing favoritism to my neighbor? The reason I'm telling you this is that I think that we have to look at faith and works like this nuclear reactor where we're called to take the control rods out and let faith and works go crazy in our lives. We're not supposed to just say, oh, I need to add a little bit of faith here. I need to add a little bit of works here. We need to take the control rods out and let faith and works begin working off of each other, changing our lives and changing our communities. We need to let these things loose to do their... If we actually have faith, then let it loose to do its work. It has to show up in how we live or it's no good. So where are we called? Where are we called to let love of God spill over in the rest of our lives? Where, where in our lives can we say, God, I want to be a taste of the kingdom. Please let faith and works loose in my life and in my community. I don't want just some faith and some works. Oh, God, I want all of both. I want to be a taste of the kingdom. But if you're like me, you, look at, you get to this point in the passage and you hear, oh, I'm not supposed to show favoritism. Is there anybody in my life that I show favoritism to? We begin creating strategies for how can I make this happen? But this passage, instead of being a, call to come up with better strategies, more work. It actually should convict us and say, hey, I am a lawbreaker. God, have mercy on me. God, I do show favoritism to the people that think like me, that look like me, that have more money than I do. God, I'm the one that breaks this law. I may not commit adultery and I may not commit murder, but God, I'm the one that plays favorites. Where is there mercy and hope for me? God, I'm the one who has, says he has faith, but it doesn't ever show up in my life and works. God, it's not everybody else that's the problem. That if this is your if this is your law and this is this is your standard, I'm the lawbreaker. I think that's the actual appropriate response to a passage like this: is to say, God, I'm the lawbreaker. Where's good news? How could faith somehow let loose in my life? This passage convicts us of sin, but becomes good news not when we work harder on strategies, but it's when we instead look at this passage and see Jesus' fingerprints and life all over it. Jesus is the one who is dishonored in my place. Jesus, the King of the universe, was told, go and sit on the sideline. No, not just sit on the sideline. Hang on this cross. Go and die in this tomb. Jesus is the one that was dishonored in our place. Jesus is the one that kept every law and yet died as a lawbreaker. The worst of the lawbreakers. Jesus is the one who paired love of God with abundant good works. The book of John says, if we had listed everything that Jesus had done, all the books in the world wouldn't contain it. And yet, His record is credited to us. His record is credited to us, and so faith can become a 
a source of good works in our lives as we realize that God's law is no longer hanging over us. God's law has actually now come to us with good news and power to change our lives. You say, Joe, how can I know for sure? How can I know for sure that I am rich in faith and an inheritor of the kingdom of those that love God? The Bible says those who love God are the ones that recognize four things. That God is the king, he is the creator, he made the world, and he made us little kings under him, and we owe him our obedience and our allegiance. Somebody who loves God recognizes, God, you are supposed to be king over me, but not only that, I've broken your law. I've said you will not be king over me. I will not listen to you. I will do not do what you call me to do. I'm going to live my own way, setting up my own rival kingdom. But not only that, recognizing that God is king, that we have made ourselves his enemies, but that Jesus came and lived the life that we should live and died the death that we should die so that we can be brought into his kingdom. Recognizing God is king, that we have made ourselves his enemies, that he has made a way for us to be brought back into his kingdom, and that that way back into his kingdom is as we turn away from sin and trust in Jesus alone to save us. We turn away from sin and say, I don't want this. I've lived with it my whole life. I've attached myself to it in every way possible, but I don't want it anymore. I want Jesus. The person that recognizes each of those four things and takes Jesus can say, oh, I am rich in faith and an inheritor of the kingdom, and so now that can become the source and the the fuel for good works in my life. If you have questions about that, please grab me. We talk about this week after week here, and it is the story that each one of us needs to know and have deeply ingrained in our hearts so that we produce new lives and new fruit. So this passage says, do not show favoritism. God hasn't played favorites and he's opened his arms to you. Don't show favorites because you follow that kind of God. Don't show favorites because this is as important as every other law. Do not show favorites because you cannot divorce love from God for God with love for people. So then imagine what it looks like. We do that. What changes? What changes if you and you and you? What what changes if we don't show favorites? Nobody else is like that. People begin to sit up and notice in our families when we go, oh, this, this mom, this dad, this child, this aunt, this uncle, this grandparent has this spilling over love for God that shows up in life, in my life, even though I don't deserve it. What changes in a in a community when there's a church that says we welcome those that are poorly dressed as well as we welcome those that are richly dressed. What changes as a community begins to say, hey, there are people here that make sure that nobody goes hungry, that, that nobody goes cold in the winter. You see, there's no other organization that can do what a group of Christians can do in their own walks and in their own neighborhoods. I can't take care of every cold person. I can't feed every person in the world. You can't feed every person, but each of us can say, in my circle, I'm not going to play favorites, and I'm going to make sure that the kingdom of God is tasted here. Then the church, the gospel becomes good news. People say, oh, that's what faith looks like. That's what it looks like when God is king in a church and in a town and in somebody's life. And that's good news. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your good words.
We thank you that you didn't play favorites. You didn't leave us on the sidelines. You didn't ignore us. You made sure we heard the good news. God, help us join you in that good news. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for our series called 167. Please connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and BelgiumChurch.com. 